Welcome to the Living the Dream Podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball Podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. Today, we're going to be talking about mental health conditions and treatment options and also any innovative treatment that is available for things like depression and other mental health conditions as I am joined by Dr. Rebecca Allen. Dr. Allen has an extensive and impressive bio, so can't wait to get into this subject matter with her and talk to her about everything that she's up to and how she came to work in the field. She really enjoys what she does. So Dr. Allen, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Of course. So I'm a psychiatrist. So basically that means I was in training for a really long time. (laughs) So first um, college at Stanford and then medical school. And I also got a master's of public health in biostatistics and epidemiology and then training residency at Harvard, uh, followed by um, fellowship um, specifically in neuropsychiatry. So I came to Seattle in 2017 and I've been in practice as a, as a neuropsychiatrist doing brain stimulation and mainly treating people with severe treatment resistant major depression, also other conditions as well. And I, I do very much like what I do because I, I enjoy seeing people get better and I like giving people hope as I think so often people assume that they've tried everything that's out there and that it hasn't worked for them and that it's hopeless. And especially in depression, people can feel that way. A sense of hopelessness is is part of the struggle. It's part of the disease, if you will. And I I know that it's not hopeless. I know that there are a lot of options out there and I see people get better all the time, every day. Well, before we jump into it, t- tell people how you got into the field and, and how you started working with depression? Of course. Yeah. So I became interested in the brain actually as a as a child. My grandmother had a stroke. And while that was tragic, it, she also lived another 15 years and there were changes in how her brain worked that I found very interesting, fascinating. And then I became depressed. So when I was a teenager and in college, I struggled a lot not nearly as much as many of my patients do. I, I now know that it was not what we would call severe, but it did not feel great at the time. And I I thought, you know, I, I really want to help people going through something like this. I, I want to treat this condition. And I, in medical school, as everyone does, you know, thought about different specialties. I considered neurology and I thought about being a gynecologist, but I just kept coming back to uh, these are people struggling with mental health issues. These are the kinds of people that I really like talking to and I really like working with and I can really connect with and empathize with and I and I really want to help. So that's what I came to do. So I've I've spent my career treating depression, among other things, but really at this point, largely depression. And it's just, it's it's really wonderful work. I love keeping up on 
all of the options, the new things that are available. And, and it's, it's, I think, been a really good career choice for me. <laughs> so, Well, explain to people what depression actually is. Depression is, if you think about the worst day you've had, where you wake up in the morning and it's like you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and it just feels like everything is not going to go well. And you're telling yourself that things are not going well. Every time something goes wrong, you think, wow, I did something deserve to deserve that. People don't like me. I don't have any energy. I don't want to do anything. Nothing is fun. I'm not enjoying it. What's the point anyway? I'm not looking forward to anything later today. I'm not looking forward to anything tomorrow. Might even feel like it's so bad you want to cry. Depression is like that, but it's every day. It's all the time. And sometimes for some people, many people, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. It's not necessarily caused by any stress or tragedy or event in a person's life. It can be, but it very often isn't. Um, And it just sticks and it's not logical. When a person is depressed, clinical depression, they're not depressed about something. It's not that something's wrong in their life. And if you fix that thing that's wrong in their life, then they're going to be suddenly better. Something is wrong in their, in their brain, or you could describe it as being wrong in the spirit. I think of it more as the brain because my, what I do is the, is biological treatments, but it, it feels like you are dispirited, down, hopeless, low energy. Sometimes people want to sleep all the time and are very tired. And sometimes people want to eat a lot. Sometimes people feel like they can't sleep, racing thoughts, anxious, guilty thoughts, and feel like they can't eat. It's a brutal condition. Well, how how was depression treated and and does, does treatment work in your perspective? Yes. So the the most classic oldest way of treating depression is talking through things, psychotherapy. And the idea behind psychotherapy is that if you can change your thinking patterns and change what you're doing with your body, what you're doing with your day, how you're behaving, that you can have an influence on your mood, that you can treat the depression. And that works a lot of the time. I know a lot of therapists who have patients who've never been on any medications and they do therapy and they get better. That certainly can work. Those are not the people who I tend to see, but I know that that is a treatment that's out there that does work for lots of people. Then there are medications and in depression, the primary medications that we would use are antidepressants, although we also combine antidepressants with medicines from other categories that we would call adjuncts, like add-on medicines. Antidepressants work the first drug a person will try, the first antidepressant a person will try that has about a third a chance of working. So if you take 100 people and you give them all their first antidepressant in their life, 100 people who are depressed, you give all of them an antidepressant, a third of them will respond. And then you take the people who didn't respond to that first antidepressant and you give them a second one. And you take the people who didn't respond to the second one and you try a third one. In the end, two-thirds of people respond to a medication and get better. Uh, there is still that one-third out of those 100 people, about 33 people who don't respond to 
four different trials of medications. And we consider that group to be what we call treatment resistant. There's different terms to describe that, but in a lot of medical literature, that's the, that's the terminology that's used as a treatment resistant depression. And for those patients, and that's mostly who I see are people who have really persistent debilitating depression and who have failed trials of multiple medications. We have other options and that's mostly where, where I do my work. So we have brain stimulation options and we have the newer medications that are considered a little bit more interventional like ketamine. And then coming down the road now is also psilocybin. But in my practice, we treat people with transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a form of brain stimulation. We treat people with electroconvulsive therapy, which is an old form of brain stimulation, but very, very effective and still very much has a place in, in practice and, and also with the ketamine and esketamine. Well, since you brought up the brain stimulation, go, go ahead and explain what it is and, and, and how it actually works. Of course. Yeah. So there are brain stimulation is a bit of an umbrella term and there are multiple types of treatments that you could put under that umbrella. There are some that have much less evidence to support them, but are available cheaply and are sold online. And in that category would be sending a very small electrical current, like taping a battery with leads to your head, more or less. That is called transcranial direct current stimulation. It's not a treatment that my clinic offers, but the evidence is is getting there. There are studies coming out that are more and more encouraging over time. We're not really quite there yet. Then much higher level of evidence been around, you know, in clinical use longer would be transcranial magnetic stimulation. And I'll just say up front that my bias is this is my favorite treatment of what we do. And I'm the incoming president of the clinical TMS society. And I very much, I very much think TMS is a interesting, promising, fascinating way of approaching treatment. But what it is, is it's taking tightly wound coils of wire and pulsing electricity through the coils of wire. And that creates a magnetic field perpendicular to the electrical current. And this is Faraday's law, the relationship between electricity and magnetism. And we're using that law to, to, to treat the brain. So we have electrical current going through the coil and that creates a magnetic field. And we put the coil on somebody's head, just rested against the head. And there's a magnetic field then going down into the brain. And it's pretty small. So there's different size coils with different shapes of magnetic fields uh, that they put out, different strengths of magnetic fields. But the most commonly used kind of TMS that we do to treat depression, it's a pretty small magnetic field. We're stimulating about the size of a quarter on the surface of the brain and uh, maybe a centimeter and a half down into the brain itself. And magnetic fields are infinite. They go on forever. But the strong part of the magnetic field where it can actually do something to the brain with these coils is quite small. With TMS for depression, I like to tell people, I like to tell patients that TMS is a tool it's a machine, it's a tool, and what you do with the tool makes it a treatment or makes it not a treatment. 
And so you can use this tool to treat many different things. And there are lots and lots of studies out there using this coil, this technique, putting the coil on different parts of the brain, turning the coil, the pulses, you know, per second up and turning them down and sending the pulses in different patterns that can make this a tool that you can use to treat, for example, uh, hearing voices in schizophrenia or to treat headaches or to treat chronic pain. But the protocol, the way of using this coil for depression, that has the most papers, the most studies, the most data to back it up of any use for this machine that that's ever been published or looked at. So depression has really, really strong evidence behind it. And what we do with the coil for depression is we place it over the left frontal part of the head. So if you're thinking about your own forehead, it's kind of at the top of the forehead near the hairline on the left above your eyebrow. And of course, we we measure in order to find that spot. But if you're thinking about where do we put the coil for TMS, that's that's approximately where it is for, for depression. And we put the coil on, on that spot, which is called the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which basically means left side in the front. And we send pulses through the coil, which then sends a magnetic field into the brain. And what that magnetic field is doing is it's treating your brain cells like they're a bunch of electrical wires, and it's making those brain cells fire. And brain cells that fire together, wire together. So when you are making those brain cells more active during the treatment, the goal is to then have those brain cells also be more active when you're not sitting in the chair getting treatment at other times, other days, and in an ongoing way. And you might ask, well, why that spot in the brain? Why there? Why on the left side? It's because it's part of the emotion regulation circuit. So parts of the brain that work together in order to keep your emotions functioning and working for you and helpful to you and not harming you. So there are imbalances in this emotion regulation circuit that are seen over and over again in in imaging studies where we get pictures of the brain or studies where we're getting images of the electrical activity in the brain. These kinds of studies looking at how the brain works uh, over and over again, we see patterns in this circuit in people who are depressed that are different than people who aren't depressed. And so the front part of the circuit, the part that it, that we're stimulating with TMS is a part of the circuit that we see over and over is not as active as it should be in people with depression. So we're trying to kick that part of the circuit into gear and, and balance the emotion regulation, the mood regulation system. So that that is what TMS is intending to do. And it's very different than how medications work. So when you take a medication to treat depression or really to treat anything, it goes everywhere in your body. It's processed by the, you know, the gut, the liver, the kidneys, and then it goes everywhere in your bloodstream. And then it activates the parts of your body that have receptors where, where the medication can interact. Um, so it might be interacting in places where you want it to. So for example, a drug like Prozac will interact with 
serotonin pathways in the brain. That's what you want it to do. It'll also interact with serotonin pathways in your intestines, in your gut. And you don't want it to do that, but there's serotonin down there too. So, so you have um, side effects, stomach, gastrointestinal side effects. With TMS, it's, it's quite targeted. It's much more direct. So it's not sending a magnetic field everywhere in the body. It's sending a magnetic field only to a particular spot in the brain where we want something to change. So radically different in terms of concept for how, uh, how we can, how we can treat uh, brain conditions, how we can treat depression. So um, I've gone on for a while, Curtis, do you, do you want to, you want to clarify anything or before I move on to some other methods or um, how are we doing? Well, what I want to know is how, how does a, a physician decide what types of treatment that each patient needs? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and TMS, what I was just talking about, transcranial magnetic stimulation isn't the only brain stimulation or interventional treatment out there. We also have, as I said earlier, electroconvulsive therapy, which the advantage of it is it works and the disadvantage of it is everything else. So it does not have the kinds of dramatic memory side effects that are depicted in, in movies and in television shows like Stranger Things or some other shows where I've, I've seen it depicted almost amusingly incorrectly. But there is a grain of truth. There are some cognitive memory side effects that are temporary that happen during the treatment course, and people can lose some memories from a few months to even up to a year prior to getting ECT. But it works in eight out of 10 people. So that's why we do it because it is so very effective. And if a person is in bed all the time, can't work, having a hard time taking care of themselves because their depression is so bad, maybe they're feeling like they want to die, they're feeling suicidal, then something like ECT, which has an eight out of 10 chance of working, seems like a very reasonable choice to many people. So that's that's one way of looking at it is how severe is this problem and how urgent is this problem? And when a person has really severe depression where there's you know a risk to themselves that warrants something um, that is very likely to work but can have side effects like electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. If a person is less severe than that and they could try something for six weeks, two months, that may not work and that wouldn't be dangerous, then transcranial magnetic stimulation or another medication trial might be more what you would think about. I didn't say this yet, but TMS is a daily treatment, five days a week for six weeks in a row. Each treatment is not very long. It's about 30 minutes in the office, of which 18 minutes is how long we're actually stimulating the brain, but it's a lot of treatments back to back in a row. And it works in about six out of every 10 people who have depression. So you're thinking about when you're comparing just ECT and TMS, electroconvulsive therapy and transcranial magnetic stimulation, you're thinking about one, you know, that's done under anesthesia that can cause cognitive side effects, but makes sense for people who are, who are very ill and where there's, you know, this urgency. When you're thinking about TMS, it's done outpatient, a person is awake, sitting in a chair, and it feels like a tapping sensation on their head, really not much in the way of side effects, but works in six out of 10 people. 
you got to weigh that. You know, what if you're the four in 10? How bad would that be? Right. Um, and then there's uh, ketamine, which for all intents and purposes is, is just another drug, but it's a drug with a very different mechanism of action from the drugs that are offered that you would take by mouth. So very different from Prozac or Zoloft or Trintilix or any of the others you might have had heard advertised on television. It, I will say that it's not 100% clear which of the things that ketamine does is the most important thing, but it does a lot of different things, a lot of ways that it works on the brain that make it work pretty well for depression. And ketamine works in over half of people who try it and people with treatment-resistant depression who failed a lot of things, uh, failed a lot of treatments. If they try ketamine, over half of them will respond. How much over half is a little bit unclear at this point. Some people will say six out of 10. Some people will say seven out of 10. A little bit hazy right now, I think. But it can be a lifesaver for many people disadvantage of ketamine is that it it doesn't stick very well. So if a person responds to ketamine, most of the time they need to keep coming in over and over in a in a long-term way in order to sustain the benefit. And that's a that's a disadvantage. Then there's also an implant called vagal nerve stimulation or VNS, vagus nerve stimulation, and that is a device that has a battery pack that is implanted under your skin below your collarbone. So if you feel your collarbone and then you move your fingers just a little bit down, like say two inches down, and you kind of pinch your skin and the flesh under your skin right there, the part that you're able to pinch and kind of wiggle around, that's what's above the battery pack. And then below the battery pack is your the muscle of your chest wall. And it's about the size and shape of a Girl Scout Thin Mint cookie. I'm sure we've all been getting exposed to lots of Girl Scout cookies lately. And uh, that is the one that is the closest. And then there's wires coming out of that battery pack that go up to the neck. And the vagus nerve is in the neck. And the wire is wrapped around the vagus nerve in order to stimulate that nerve. What the vagus nerve is, is the input and output to the brain for the part of your nervous system that is the calm down, chill out, rest and digest part of our function. So you all may have heard the term fight or flight, you know, when you're scared and when your heart races and your blood pressure goes up and you need to run from a tiger or you get really stressed out because you're about to give a speech, that's the sympathetic nervous system the parasympathetic nervous system is the exact opposite of that. The rest and digest, chill out, calm down. And so the vagus nerve stimulator is trying to activate that system. And this is a treatment that's been used a lot for people with seizures. And it's used much more often for people with seizures than for people with depression. Uh, and that's mostly having to do uh, systems of care and insurance payments. Um, but the data for depression is is pretty good. And I've seen people get you know, much better, full remission, all the way better from depression with the implanted vagus nerve stimulator. So medications, psychotherapy, uh, ketamine, transcranial magnetic stimulation, electroconvulsive therapy, uh, all of these options, I 
will be thinking about when I'm talking with a patient and I'm thinking about how long has this depression been going on? How bad is it? How acute? How dangerous? And I try very hard, you know, to talk about all of the options with, with people. But of course, being a doctor, right? I will have in mind at least two, sometimes one that I think are, are going to probably be the best bets for a person. But I see myself mainly as an educator. I, I'm not somebody's decision maker. It's my job to, to know the information, to know about these treatments and what they do, what they don't do, what their side effects are, and be able to share with patients that information so people can decide for themselves what they want to start with and what they think is the the right call for them at that time. So it's a it's a, it's a discussion. It's a mutual decision making process and I hope that I can, you know, give the, you know, the amount of information that people want and need and answer all the questions and just make sure that a person is very comfortable with what they've decided to do and that even if that first thing they try doesn't work that they we then know you know what we would go to next well speaking of that how how would a patient know who to see you know like a psychiatrist a physician assistant nurse nurse practitioner you know when they come in they might not be sure exactly who to see yeah and often i mean often unfortunately people don't have much of a choice in our current system, there's our insurance issues where often people will have very limited options because of insurance and there are issues of access. There are issues of lots of people not having room for new patients. So I wish that people could you know, go out there and find the person who seems like the best fit for them and then they'd just be able to see that person and and it's really unfortunate. It's sad that that's not the system we're in. But I can tell you about the different sort of training backgrounds of professionals. So in the psychotherapy world, there are multiple degrees that a person can get in order to be a psychotherapist, a talk therapist. So the kind of person who doesn't prescribe medications, but who will talk with you for an hour every week in an ongoing way in order to help work through things and change thoughts and behavior patterns. Some are social workers. Some have marriage and family therapy degrees, and those are the shorter degrees. So I believe it's two years for a master's of social work. Um, then on the longer side of training for a psychotherapist, there are people with, or psychologists who have doctorates of psychology, either a PsyD or a PhD. And a person with either a PsyD or a PhD will have done at least four, often six years of graduate school after their undergraduate degree in order to learn how to be a really good therapist and learn about the brain. Then in the world of medical care, people who are, are thinking more about the biological uh, interventions as their primary way of helping there are physician assistants and nurse practitioners, both of whom have their undergraduate degrees. So they go to four years of college. And then there's two years of graduate school after that. And the kind of graduate school training that they get is actually a little bit different. 
physician assistants go to part of medical school. So when I was in medical school for two years out of my four years of medical school, there were physician assistant students in class with me. So they're very much in the in the medical model. Nurse practitioners, the the field developed from the idea that nurses would be in practice for a long time or for a while at least as a nurse and then go and get their um, nurse practitioner training after that experience. So it's it's based upon the nursing model of care, which is a somewhat different way of, of thinking about things. Right now, I know though there are a lot of people who are going into nurse practitioner work very early in their career. So so the field has changed somewhat. Physician assistant nurse practitioner is about uh, two years of grad school. Then psychiatrist, uh, physician, we have four years of college, so four years of undergraduate training, and that gets us a bachelor's. And then after that, four years of medical school, and that's divided up generally two years of classroom and two years of working in hospitals in different areas, different clinics. So I've spent time in gynecology and time in neurology, and I've scrubbed in on surgeries and I've been in emergency rooms. So all of that stuff, become a doctor four years, but no doctor at the end of medical school with four years of undergrad and then four years medical school can practice right after that. In our system, we have to do something called residency. So be a psychiatrist after medical school, after already being a doctor, you then need to do four years of additional carefully supervised training in a training program. Almost all of them are university-based and you're basically told what you're doing right and doing wrong by people supervising you for four years. Then you are, you pass your last of many exams and you are released into the world to be a psychiatrist. So psychiatrists definitely have the the longest training, but for people who have depression that is they're just starting to deal with it, they're just starting to figure out what's going on, primary care doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants can all help guide through the first stages of figuring out, well, what is this anyway? You know, what should, what medicines or therapy should you try first? When you get to the point where something is is complicated, where it's not clear what treatment to try next, where somebody's been suffering for a long time, not getting better, or tried multiple treatments, not getting better, seeing a psychiatrist really makes a lot of sense at that point. And we are in many cases more knowledgeable about some of the things that are a little bit harder or scarier to do in terms of medications that need blood monitoring or um, these interventional treatments that I've been talking about that that stimulate the brain. So that's that's how I would describe our system. And everybody has an important role in care. And we are much less hierarchical as a system than we used to be. I would say as a patient though, if you're thinking about who do I see, your first question is going to be, well, who can I see? But your second question, who do I want to see? It depends on how far along you are in the illness, how bad things are, how medically complicated things are as to whether you would see a 
a therapist only or see a physician assistant or nurse practitioner or a psychiatrist? Well, I got about 20 minutes and I got about a couple of more questions for you. Of One of the questions is somebody searching online for different treatment options. How can they determine um, which one of them are good or not? I mean, searching online, it's actually really hard, right? Which is, I think, why doctors exist. There's all of this talk over the past couple of decades. I mean, really, I think since since the 90s, I've been hearing people say, well, the, the web is going to replace physicians. And I think the reason why that hasn't happened is because lots of internet sources are not very reliable. And even if they are reliable, I mean, even if the information on it is perfectly accurate, you as a patient or me, when I'm a patient, I have a hard time knowing, okay, well, how does this exactly apply to me and my particular situation? So when you are speaking with a doctor, by its nature, the care you're getting is personalized, right? So we are listening to, hopefully, right, all of the different factors that are contributing to what's going on. And trying to help you navigate and figure out what treatments make sense and what don't. There is a lot out there online that's not very accurate about psychiatry. There are groups, religions that are very against mental health care. So it's really easy to find stuff out there that is not very good, very accurate information. The National Institutes of Health, National Institute of Mental Health, has really good website with information. I wouldn't say so much resources for how to get help or where, but just information on diseases, conditions. The Mayo Clinic website, I really like a lot for patient information on different diseases and conditions. But I would say instead of thinking about, okay, I'm trying to find a treatment and then I want to find a person who's going to give me that treatment, I would think more about, I want to find a person who can help me figure out what the treatments are and what's what makes sense for me to try next and answer my questions about all of the options. I think it's a, a little bit better way to to go about it. Explain the difference between depression and bipolar of disorder. Course. Yeah. So depression, where you feel down, you feel hopeless, terrible, low energy, low motivation, that isn't something that's just one condition. So a person can get something that looks very much like depression, just like depression from multiple causes. Some of them are medical. So if you're sick with a multiple sclerosis or with some other kind of immune disorder or a thyroid disorder or even some infectious diseases, all of those symptoms of depression can be part of what you're going through. People with sleep disorders, the symptoms that they have can look very much like depression. So part of the benefit of seeing a doctor, part of what I consider my job to do is to really make sure, okay, first and foremost, is this psychiatric? Should we rule out some other things that might be causing this other than straightforward depression? And then getting to your question more directly, even within mental health, within conditions that are definitely psychiatric of, of the brain, I would say. There are different disorders that overlap a lot in how they look. And bipolar disorder and unipolar depression are two conditions that are hard to tell apart, even for people who are trained and experts. Unipolar depression which is a condition where people don't have ups. They might be 
normal or fine. And then they go down and they have depressions or they might be depressed all the time or have episodes of depression where they're okay in between, but they don't go, they don't elevate for long periods of time. They might have a good day. They might have a good couple of days, but it doesn't get to the point where it's uncharacteristic of them or dramatic change in who they are. With bipolar disorder, most people with bipolar disorder will identify depression as their main problem. They'll say, well, when I'm suffering, it's when I'm depressed and the depression is is what's interfering with my life the most. But what defines bipolar disorder is they have to have had at least one period in their life of at least several days in a row, most of the day for those several days in a row where they're up high, hyper, very irritable, energetic, sometimes speaking really fast, sometimes much more interested in pleasurable activities like sex than usual and are not very much thinking about the consequences as they normally would, sometimes spending excessively, driving fast, speaking really fast and hard to interrupt, making big plans that they normally wouldn't, thinking that they're able to do things or capable of doing things that they normally wouldn't think or that are not realistic. So a person doesn't have to have everything that I just listed in order to be considered bipolar. But if if there's been a period of time of several days, several weeks, where every day, all day, a person is up high hyper like that, and maybe they're sleeping less, feeling like they don't need to sleep as much, and they have a couple of the couple of the things that I was describing, that could be considered a manic or a hypomanic episode. And manic episode is like where it's longer and you have more of the symptoms. Hypomanic is where it's shorter and if you have fewer of the symptoms. So they're the same except just level of severity. If you've never had a manic or a hypomanic episode, by definition, you can't be bipolar according to how we've decided to you know, define these categories. And the reason why we define these categories is is so that we're all speaking the same language, so that when we're doing studies to learn more about these conditions, we're all looking at the same thing, not because there's some you know biomarker or blood test or anything that can differentiate one from the other. We're just trying to all be speaking about the same condition when we're when we're studying treatments and talking about patients. So, with bipolar disorder, it gets confusing because sometimes people think if they're very moody, if they're up and down all day, if they're like happy for a few hours in the morning and then really awful later in the afternoon, that that must be bipolar, but it's not. Even quote, rapid cycling bipolar, it's four episodes a year, right? Not four episodes a day or four episodes a week. And an episode is still defined the same. It has to be at least a few days with these sort of up high hyper symptoms, like all day, every day for those few days in a row or a few weeks in a row, or in some cases, months in a row. In the very old days before we had much in the way of psychiatric medications, before we had much in the way of treatments, mania would get so bad that people would die of it. It's, it's nothing to sniff at. There were cases of people who got so high hyper and felt like they didn't need to sleep and didn't sleep. And then that lasted for months and they died of uh, sleep deprivation. That doesn't happen these days, fortunately, at least not 
for people who live in countries and areas where they can access care. We have really good medications to help people with bipolar disorder. We have really good medications, especially to help people with hypomania and mania. But the depression part of bipolar disorder is can be stubborn, can be hard to treat. And as I said, people with bipolar disorder will will say most of the time that that's what they struggle with the most is that the, the depression is what they they feel you know is is interfering with what they want to do the most. Okay, we got about five minutes left. So tell us about any current or upcoming projects that you're working on and any websites uh, that you might have that you want the listeners to be aware of. Of course. So for people who want to read a little bit more about some of these treatments, the website for my practice, Seattle Neuropsychiatric Treatment Center. So it's www.seattlentc.com. We have information about these treatments on our website. And I think it's it's a decent place to start, even if you're not in my area and wouldn't necessarily come to us for care. There are, um, uh, sorry, so you were asking about other resources. Can you say that again, Curtis? I'm so sorry. Just any upcoming projects that you might be working oh, on or final thoughts oh, yes. listeners. Thank you so much. Yeah. So my my clinic, we also participate in clinical trials. And um, I I do that. We do that because we really want to help get new treatments out there so that people can access them and so that the evidence is there that these treatments work. You know, we never want to assume. We want to actually get the data and make sure that it's good and it works before we we recommend treatments to patients. So in my clinic, we've done one medication trial. That medication is for post-traumatic stress disorder and for depression. It's not out yet, but the results were looking really interesting and promising. We're also participating in a study on vagal, on the BNS vagus nerve stimulation. And that study is mainly to show Medicare whether or not it should cover VNS, part of what has held VNS back from being available for depression for the past 15, 18 years is that Medicare decided not to cover it because it didn't think that there was enough data. So that's what this study is. The Recover VNS trial is getting that data on the efficacy of VNS for depression in order to have that decision hopefully changed because I, I do think I've seen VNS work really well for a lot of people. So we're participating in that. And then also we are starting participation in a trial on psilocybin, or you might hear them referred to as mushrooms, which is a psychedelic. So a, which is very um, popular these days because of how successful ketamine has been. There's been a lot of interest in the research world on looking at, well, what about these other drugs that we used to be afraid of and think of as drugs of abuse? Maybe some of those could be useful in medicine, be useful for mental health. And at this point, none of them are really ready, I think, to be out as medicines for people to use outside of studies. But the there are multiple studies going on right now 
with DMA and psilocybin and, and my clinic is participating in, in one of the psilocybin ones. And I'm, I'm quite excited about that. I, I think that, that this is very, it's a very promising medication. And what's particularly exciting is that the durability looks good, is that when people have a good response, and it's not everybody, but when people do in, in the data that we have so far, the response sticks pretty well. And that's, that's valuable. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful about the future with these upcoming treatments. Absolutely. So ladies and gentlemen, please be sure to check out everything that Dr. Allen's up to and read up on the treatments. If you know somebody that might be someone that can be helped by these new innovative treatments and everything that's going on, please be sure to pass this episode on to them. Follow, rate, review, share this episode to as many people as possible. If you have any guest suggestion topics, see Jackson102 at Cox.net is the place to send them. Dr. Allen, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your expertise. Thank you so much for having me. And I I hope somebody listening to this hears, hears something useful and helpful and can give them hope. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.